0: The Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, insights, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Christoph Defoe. I'm Sean Prophet. And I'm Joe Kipinti. We're joined today by my friend and fellow Georgetown Law alum, Nilu Kansari. Nilu is the founder of Pangea Legal Services in San Francisco, where she and her colleagues focus on immigration rights. Today, Nilu will discuss with us Pangea's collective leadership model, her upcoming book, and what it means to be a movement lawyer. But first, I want to remind you that if you like our show, to make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And we also publish new articles regularly at our journal at theradicalsecular.com. The Radical Secular Podcast is brought to you by Cannibal & Co., located in downtown Jersey City and at shopcannibal.com. Cannibal, that's Cannibal with a K, stocks a rotating collection of goods ranging from apparel and accessories to home furnishings and fine jewelry. Cannibal weaves together its forward-thinking vision with its traditional roots to provide an expertly curated experience of unique and locally sourced finds. We're grateful to Cannibal for sponsoring our show. Now we're going to do the t-shirts during the guest segment today, so I'll just go ahead and introduce Nilu. A refugee and immigrant to various countries herself, Nilu is deeply committed to standing up for the rights of immigrants in the United States and worldwide. Prior to founding Pangaea Legal Services in late 2012, Nilu started a private practice where she represented immigrants of many backgrounds, seeking relief from deportation and other areas of immigration law. She also served as a supervising attorney of the Refugee Services Program and oversaw caseworkers at OMID Advocates for Human Rights, both abroad and in the United States. As an attorney with the African Advocacy Network, NILU represented immigrants in their asylum proceedings and other immigration matters. Prior to relocating to the San Francisco Bay Area, NILU was a Fulbright Fellow in Sierra Leone, West Africa. Nilu received her undergraduate degree, magna cum laude, from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in 2006, and her law degree from Georgetown Law School in 2009, with a certification in refugees and humanitarian emergencies from the Institute for the Study of International Migration. Nilu is licensed to practice law in California. She speaks five languages English, Spanish, French, German, and Farsi. Without further ado, the Radical Cycler presents Nilu Kansari. Nilu, welcome to the show. I know you are a super busy person, so thanks for taking the time.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And did you wear a cool T-shirt for, or maybe a not cool T-shirt? Did you wear a T-shirt for the occasion, Nilu?
2: I did. I'm wearing my uh, free Yasmin shirt. Ni una mas. Uh. Um, awesome. this is a shirt that, um, was designed and made for by and for the immigrant community for one of our clients, uh, a mom who had three kids was ripped away from her kids by ice, uh, thrown in prison, detained for way too long months. And, um, in the community, like as part of like the advocacy and organizing and pushing, Um, to free her made these t-shirts that said free her free Yasmin and then it said ni una mas ni una mas means in Spanish uh, is um, not one more not one more detention not one more deportation um, of our people and um, yeah we were this was a case where we were successful we were able to bring her back oh, after a lot of like legal and organizing partnerships in order to get, yeah. Just appellate litigation. It was just, awesome. it was a long effort. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Um, I'm not surprised in some way that that's like the story that you have. I mean, you, you really do a lot of really amazing work. Um, and, uh, and so let's, let's go, uh, on to the next person. Who's up next, Joe.
3: Hi. <laughs> uh, oh, my t-shirt. Yes, yes. of course. I, you know, I was thinking about, I was still thinking about your story. <laughs> it, it, it's it, a really I, riveting I, story, I, actually. It is, it's and, pretty and I want to know more about it, honestly, because like I, that's really an important thing for me. I, I used to work with immigrant and refugee populations and, and it's like really important. Anyway, my, my t-shirt is human. Awesome. You know, and I think the, the reason for this is because we really are all about human flourishing. And we also are seeing just incredible threats to that. And so, we want to talk about some of those threats tonight. And I thought, you know, this would be a good a good uh, thing to, to to
1: represent humans. <laughs> that, yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, who knew yeah. Yeah. Who that would be a, a, good, a good thing to take seriously. You know, human beings, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Go ahead, Sean.
0: Well, I have a shirt on. This is a shirt that I have been uh, wanting to get a hold of for a long time. And it is the radical secular Jay. Jay. and love we this. have been focused on content and not on becoming a merch store but we really yeah. do need to get our merch out there because uh these, these are great i mean we, we have stickers we have things you can get through patreon this is actually a sample from patreon uh, we don't have these available yet unfortunately but that is something that we will definitely be working on and uh you might also notice that i have a bit different background here because i'm uh i'm moving house and so like i had to take down my normal studio where i shoot my green screen so um i am i am here and uh, at a little bit less capacity than than, <laughs> than normal and lighting and everything else like that but uh i'm i'm looking forward to the content of of, of our show today and and nilu hearing from you i think this is going to be really interesting
1: Awesome, Sean. And, uh, and believe me, it's not it's not the uh, background that people come here for Sean, they come for (laughs) what you have to say, you know, so uh, I and having we can hear you just fine. And that's what's important, right? Great. Um, And and we can see you fine, too. But you know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am rocking uh, my Wonder Woman shirt. Um, because, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, Wonder Woman was, I thought one of the, uh, most important, a couple things going on here is first of all, her hair reminds me, your hair reminds me of her <laughs> hair, Milu. Uh, it's, it's, it's similarly dark and black and, and sort of like up like that. And it looks great. But, um, but also just because, um, and I, I think that the work that you do is, is really, really important. Um, and, and well, before I get into that, I think that, you know, Wonder Woman as a concept and as a and as the movie that came out is super important. Representation really, really, really matters, right? And uh, beyond that, I just think the work that you do is super, super important. And I think that um, that women leaders and and women creators, um, we need. We talk about this on the show all the time. Like this, the world, the power, the power. uh, distribution on this planet is so comically out of whack, and women have never been adequately represented, and that's probably a lot of the reason why we find ourselves where we find ourselves. Um, so, uh, so I just—that's sort of what I was thinking when I put on put on this shirt today. Um, so awesome! I love everyone's t-shirts. Thanks for everybody for playing. <laughs> um, <laughs> And let's just get into it. Let's start with a little bit of background on you, Nilu. The audience has already heard your bio, and it is incredibly impressive. What should the audience know about you that's not in your bio?
2: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what people know is I'm an immigrant. I'm an immigration attorney. I founded a nonprofit uh, nine years ago. What people might not know is that um, I was born in Iran during the Iran-Iraq war, and um, That was a war that was U.S. funded. Uh, The U.S. Mm. provided the Iraqis missiles and bombs to drop them on Iran. Um, And I have memories of sleeping um, in the basement uh, of my grandparents' house for safety um, instead of in our rooms upstairs and waking up to shattered glass windows. Um, So my parents and I, uh, we became asylees in Germany uh, when I was a toddler and I grew up there. And then I came to the U S when I was 12, um, where I was initially undocumented. Um, so all the asylees and undocumented immigrants, uh, from Latin America, Africa, other places in the world, um, that I work with every day are like a part of me. They're like my family. Yasmin is, you know, is Mm -hmm. my family. And, um, a lot of their life stories are really familiar to me.
1: Sure. Sure. That is, yeah, absolutely. I, that is, uh, Uh, powerful. It's powerful. And, uh, it's so amazing to have your voice, uh, your, your voice here. Hopefully we can amplify a little bit more, um, you know, because what you do again, is just so, so important. Did you guys want to comment on any of that?
3: Yeah. I mean, I remember that so well, I, I was in college fighting against that war (laughs) myself (laughs) and I actually met a few, uh, uh, there was a refugee young woman that I met that I knew from Iran at the time through a friend who was was sponsoring her. Um, so it's really a living a piece of history for me. So it's really good, great to have you.
2: Thank you.
1: Awesome. Well, look, let's take um, the next question here. And what I'd like to do, Nelu, um, is allow you to tell us some background about your organization, right? You have really sort of started this thing from scratch, and you've built it into a $2 million organization, you and the people around you. Um So tell us about that process. Tell, tell us about Pangea. What is Pangea? Let's go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, so how did I start the organization? I mean, I didn't start the organization with money, if that's what you're asking. But right. I, I started out with $3,000 of my savings. Um, I had over a hundred thousand dollars of student debt, um, and I didn't have seed funders, uh, or, you know, access to private wealth or family wealth. Um, the, what I did have though was, you know, this, the, this immigrant kind of just do it, worst things have happened kind of attitude. Um, and Joe, maybe you could relate, um, the, um, you know, I, I was committed to doing this the immigration work. Um, I had gone to college and law school, and uh, worked abroad for a bit in, um, in West Africa and Sierra Leone, and then come back, came back, and was in the Bay Area. And so I started surveying the field. I was like, I want to do immigration work. I, I just started with a basic Google search, like immigration organizations in the Bay Area, it's like who are they, what are they, who works there. Started like checking out, like who do I know in these places reached out to people, talk to them. And I kind of did a, did like, you know, a questionnaire or like an informal survey of everyone that I spoke with, like who, like who's doing what, what's missing, like what's, what work is being done in the immigration field. Um, and kind of got a sense of what was happening and what was needed. And what I kept hearing over and over again was we need attorneys for people who have court hearings, who are going to immigration court. And who are in deportation proceedings so people who are in court are in deportation proceedings Um, some are detained some are not detained and so that's what i kept hearing like oh there's a lot of organizations they do immigration like green card applications, citizenship like the affirmative work but no one's doing this like detained or this court work um or very few are doing this work um there's like really small quantities small scales private attorneys so, um, I linked up, I started, I took on a few pro bono cases, won them one after another. Um, and there were asylum cases, uh, in immigration court. And then, um, the referral started coming in and, uh, I started asking for low fees. And one of the nonprofit organizations that I was partnering with was like, we want to hire you, but we don't have funding for this. Like, why don't you just, you know, charge some fees and we'll, you know, we'll support you with materials, supplies, paralegal research, um, support, and, um, please like help our community, please represent these clients in court. So I did it. Um, and I started doing this and I like from that started this like low fee practice. And then, um, I slowly you know, transitioned that into Pangea, uh, and transferred my low fee cases to pangea the organization that i registered um and um yeah it went from there um wow. the i think yeah i think the key to like getting from zero to where we are now like which is like a two million dollar budget is um identifying this like huge need like seeing that there was a real need for this kind of legal work um and then um yeah the the gap like seeing that there's just not, like, it's not being filled. Like, the need is really not being filled. Um, right. right. And um, and then doing it w- well. <laughs> you know, we did, mm-hmm. I did do the work well. <laughs> yeah. And right. that, this was, like, the three <laughs> magic pieces um, to sure. get us there. Yeah. And then, but yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, no. I, I was just going to ask you, like, what is – what laws, right? That like, what is your bread and butter, right? I mean, I'm a I'm i I'm a labor and employment lawyer, right? So it's the FLSA, right? It is the uh, it is um, uh, it is. Various laws that I'm now I'm, I'm brain farting on, but the <laughs> but there's but there's a body of, of substantive law right that, that we that we work with every day and there's and um in the immigration space what is that is is there, I mean is there a common law that's developed is it more of a uh, it's it's or is it is it statute based in, in which statutes are we talking about?
2: We're talking in broad terms. Broad terms. We're talking about um, case law. Um, we're talking about. Um, the Board of Immigration Appeals, which falls under the actually immigration. Mm. If we want to, I mean, I could, I could turn this back on you. Like the three, the three, <laughs> the three. What are the three branches of power? The three oh, branches wow. of power. We've got right, the right. legislative, the executive, the judicial. Executive,
1: the judicial the, sure. We work under right, right. all of
2: them. We work in yeah, all man. of these branches. Um, and uh, you know, under the executive is where the immigration court falls. Um, that's also where the immigration appeals court, the board of immigration appeals falls. So it's, we're really practicing a lot under the executive branch, um, mm-hmm. and in this area. Um, and then the, you know, Congress, um, is where you know, where like asylum law, the, Re- the refugee act, um, is passed uh-huh. okay. or gotcha. certain other, like more permanent laws are passed. Um, and then, um, the um, judicial, the courts, like we do, also appeal our cases. Like Yasmin's case, we um, we appeal to the um, the court, the federal court of appeals in San Francisco. Um, and so we practice there. So we kind of go across all three branches. Um, and
0: I wanted to make a comment about immigration because if you're not yeah, somebody who has ever run afoul of the immigration system as in tried to get a family member uh, from another country into the country, uh, you have no idea how absolutely agonizing and uh, terrible the system is. And the United States just really doesn't like, letting people in and Mm -hmm. i'm wondering if you i i I don't know what uh obviously you deal with this every day i only dealt with a a personal situation but it dragged on for years and the person was ultimately not let in the country and after all of uh, after all the court cases and everything it was it was denied so um i'm just wondering how many times does that happen how many times do you actually see that where, where where families are split up by the u.s immigration system
2: it happens this day, every day, just far more than it happens otherwise. I mean, we, we always hear, you know, oh, like the person should just get in line. Oh, they should just come into the U.S. Uh, legally. Uh, like they can just uh, come legally. Uh, yeah. Yeah, actually, gross. no, that's like there's a 0.001% chance for the majority of the people that we work with that are here. Um, and and Pinjia actually works specifically with folks that are already in the U.S., and already, you know, have a path to, you know, to legal status. Um, you know, some avenue, whether it's asylum or U visa cancellation, some some avenue to to lawful status, and there are many. But um, but the you know the avenue to actually get in is. Slim to none, especially for people of color, or you know, for the brown mm-hmm. immigrants, especially for immigrants mm-hmm. who have no access to wealth, have like not money to show in their bank accounts, um, and yeah, and and then the deep the separation, the family separation, like what was about to happen to Yasmin, you know, she was torn apart from her kids, separated from them, um, the like the fact that she got reunified is, um, you know. Is possible and it's the chances actually increase when there's legal representation when there's community advocacy but
3: mm-hmm.
2: when there isn't chances are very low
3: yeah so if you if you don't mind me asking there's like basically like three broad categories we have people who are have, have documents of green cards and that are officially immigrants and then there are the undocumented and then we have the the refugee population and i wonder do you, which one do you work with most and which one do you find do you think is most challenging like most they're having the most struggles right now
2: <sighs> i don't know if we can play the oppression olympics on this one but um we work
3: with, <laughs> it's yeah. like,
2: mm, i don't know um the <laughs> the i mean the yeah they're all being um they're all struggling and being oppressed in different ways and and attacked and targeted in different ways. The population that I work with the most is um, the undocumented population in the U.S. Um, Okay. Folks who come here on the classic C visa, I don't know if you've heard about that one. It's really popular. Um, Visa... No, 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 please. Visa de Coyote. It's the Coyote Uh, visa. uh, It's a joke. uh,
0: Um, uh, (laughs) uh, How how When that happens, okay, like... I know that people who either lie on their immigration form or enter the country illegally can receive a 10-year ban. How often do you see that happening?
2: Um that happens very often. People are removed or deported very quickly, especially folks from Mexico. There's there's like no time. Like I had a client once um but I've had many clients actually who, you know, who are picked up and then um if they didn't get, if they didn't have like an attorney or if they didn't like say they were afraid to go back and claimed fear and asylum, uh, then, um, they're bused back the same day. So, um, so when that happens and they come back again, um, there's this 10 year or once there's this deportation after entering without lawful documents, um, then this, you know, depend, there's the it depends on the situation and the length of stay in the U.S, but there is this, this 10-year ban or this 10-year wait period. And then after the 10-year wait period, there is no like, other visa <laughs> that automatically like appears or becomes available. Um, it's just a 10-year wait period before, like if there is yeah, if, if yeah.
0: Wow. So what you're wow. basically saying is that people cannot come to this country legally, pretty much under almost any circumstances.
2: Very, very few circumstances under which they can come to the United States legally. Of course, there are visas. Of course, they're, they're like A right, through, right. like I don't know what letter we're on now, like W visas. There's some, <laughs> the whole alphabet, we have a, we have a lot of visas. Um, they're generally most available to, to folks with higher degrees of education, right. access to wealth, single mm-hmm. people. Um, or people who have not no, never mind not single books either. I generally available to people who have access to wealth, higher levels of education, and come from you know w- Western countries or
1: more privileged right. countries. And and that's what I was, and I I want to move on to the next segment, but that's what I was thinking as we were talking about this, right? There is two immigration systems, right? There is an immigration for the wealthy and connected, or not even wealthy and connected, right? The people that Donald Trump said, why don't we get the good immigrants, right? Like, right, this sort of, this pure racism, right? that spewing from him not surprising, but uh, my point is that there is that immigration system for folks who can come in and sponsored by by a corporation and by a business and all this sort of thing, right? And then there's the one for everybody else, which is overwhelmingly brown people, and that is not a mistake. Um, but let's let's move on because uh, I want to talk about one of the easily the most fascinating element of what you're doing over at Pangea, um, setting aside the amazing sort of. Day to day work you're doing is your collective governance model. Um, That is something that we sort of I think fantasize here about at at the radical secular, like a new kind of way of thinking about work. So how does that work for you, uh, Nilu? And and isn't it inefficient?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. So um, how it works, I guess. So how it works Mm -hmm. first, um, we share leadership. That means, and we diffuse our power. We have transparency. so, some examples of that are, um, you know, all decision making and executive authority is distributed in hubs, and we have eight different hubs. Um, a hub is like a leadership team, and everyone in my organization is on a hub. We have 17 full time staff. Um, and all staff, another example is like all staff receive the same salary. We're at $70,000, um, regardless of educational attainment or your professional experience. Um, And then, um, you know, and some organizations that are also, you know, collectively governed um, and and intentional about the salary stuff have tiers, but they have caps on their highest paid and their lowest paid. And so, you know, that's another way to sort of share and diffuse power. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And then um, we another thing we do is um, new policies or big decisions for the organization um, are voted on by the full team. Um, and the other thing, um, one other example is uh, last year when we, uh, not last year, it was about two years ago, um, we removed the co-executive director titles that my colleague Bianca uh, and I held, and we all became co-directors. So that reflects you know, our collective and distributed power structure through our hubs. And um, that's just, a, that's, yeah, that's a few examples of how we practice this shared leadership. And it means that literally everyone... Is included in our in our processes, and everyone gets a voice. There's like the structure is super clear. Who's making the proposals and decisions is clear, and we have like deep conversations around people's needs. And like from those conversations, our relationships are stronger. And I think it's um, the most important thing is in this is that there's full buy in on (laughs) policies and organizational decisions because people's voices are heard. Um, yeah. And I think, and so you know, to your question of, um, is it inefficient? (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Um, (laughs) I'm just poking fun, obviously, you know, but but I do, but I am interested to hear, right? That would be a criticism somebody would say. It's like, well, if you have a CEO, the CEO gets a decision and makes a decision and the company moves that way. Right. Um, so, so, you know, I think that's, so how, how do you solve for that? Or is it just worth it? You know?
2: Yeah. Um, well, is it worth it? Yes. Is it inefficient? <laughs> is it inefficient sometimes? I mean, I would say yes and no to that. Um, mm-hmm. I think that like unlearning this like colonizer hierarchical top-down mm. mindset takes time. <laughs> it takes a lot of energy to undo that and to build something new like from scratch with like few you know few allies or few examples or models to turn to. Um, there's um, you know, there is that. But then, at the on the other hand, I think it's really efficient. It's we it's been really efficient for us in the long run. Um, you know, in the nine years that I've been at Pangea, we've had um, like almost a hundred percent retention. Um, wow,
0: wow. <laughs> this is really. Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was, uh, when you brought up the $70,000 figure, um, this reminded me, I mean, you were, if you've been doing this for nine years, then you were first, but there's a guy named Dan price with a company called gravity payments. And he did the same thing where he yeah, put everybody, everybody on a $70,000 salary from the top to the bottom. And he said it cut his turnover in half.
2: Yeah. 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 I, I actually just That's learned amazing. about gravity payments. That's awesome. Um, if you know of yeah. other, if you know of other organizations or groups, um, I would love to learn or uh, connect with them. Um, yeah, I'm like deep in the research and, and seeking out folks.
0: I, I, I do have, wonder uh, in a way, because it was like, um, if you think about the lowest paid person getting 70, that's great, but for people at the CEO level or somebody like yourself, maybe you have student loans or other things that are, you know, very, it might be difficult to 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 make it in some places on 70K. What, what do you say about that?
2: Agreed. Uh, and that's why I would like for everyone to get to hundred K, especially in the Bay area. That's like, that's Mm -hmm. considered a living wage. According to the MIT calculator, living wage is hundred K for a single parent with one child, which is me. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, that's what I would like. And that's what I'd like for everyone. Um, and at the same time, I don't, um, uh, you know, we have we, at Pangea we have salary conversations every year across the staff, and we talk really transparently and openly about what, um, yeah, how this how this amount feels to us, and um, and how like how what we need, and through these conversations, I've learned really interesting things about my colleagues. Like debt isn't the only thing. Like my my having student debt that's being repaid by my university and that it's on a forgiveness plan is like, maybe not as much as a burden or equal a burden as somebody else's like, you know, debt. One of my, you know, some, another colleague may have a medical debt for a parent mm. because their parent yeah. is undocumented. And that's, mm. um, that's like, that's a huge, a much bigger burden that's unsupported by any system or structure. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is that with, um, with these tiers, like when we do go into these tiers, Um well you know, I'll I'll leave it. Um I have I have a lot of thoughts on this, but there's another question on this that Christoph you had. Um
1: on this. (laughs) I I just I wanted I, I would just wanted to, I mean, we, we don't have to stand, you know, stick cl- super close to anything. We can do whatever we want here. So don't worry about that. But but I will say, um, right? you have paralegals and support staff that that are making the same as lawyers, right? They have less education. They have less debt. They have less experience. Is that sort of what you're getting at there? That um, even though it may seem that way from the outside, it doesn't mean, and f- well, first of all, that perhaps they're you know their contribution should be recognized as that as 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 equal just on the merits. And then second of all, um, uh, right? People have a lot of a lot of things that are behind below the surface, sort of uh, concerns and debts and stuff like that that we don't see. But anyway, I would like would you want to comment on that at all? Or yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I think you hit it on the nail. I mean, you hit it on the spot. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. But yeah. So I think so. There's a few things that come to mind. Actually, there's on on what you just said um Christophe the um the the merits like merits is a whole like whole other thing like the way that we've defined Mm -hmm. merits in the U.S. and in most places is is real as really like enforcing oppressive systems and this like colonizer mindset (laughs) um merits like Oh, like if you're a lawyer, okay, you've had to, you have had to have gone to college and law school and, you know, pass the, pass this exam. And most people who end up there are white. Um, many end up, you know, many are, are men or many are, you know, members of um, more privileged groups. And mm-hmm. um, if you considered merits, like there's actually one organ, organization organ Oregon that um, did this equitable merits like revamp in their organization and they um they assessed merits based on experience like experience being bipoc experience Mm. with like incarceration experience being lgbtq um they valued those things and they tiered their salaries based on that so the highest paid people ended up being bipoc lgbtq and like (laughs) women um and the lowest people ended up being white males and um that's, you know, there's, there are different ways to look at merits. <laughs> That's one thing. Mm-hmm. And then, um, one thing that I've seen, like in organizations that are well-intentioned that do have salary scales, and I think salary scales are good. There are different ways to, to implement salary scales that are actually more fair and less disparate, um, and less extreme. Yeah, sure. Um, but you know, organizations that are well-intentioned and want to be horizontal have tried scales based on seniority, like what you were saying, Sean. Um, you know, oh, like if you're a CEO or you're a founder or you've worked at an organization nine years, maybe like you should be paid more. Well, what happens in a lot of organizations when, you know, that do that um is the lowest paid people end up being BIPOC women, non-binary, right. like people who are like generally yeah, all generally paid less in all structures. And so looking at looking at these structures um it's it's yeah it's a lot of work and um yeah and there's and just to reiterate there is like there's unrecognized debt you know like the medical debt i mentioned and there's unrecognized Mm. labor emotional labor not Mm. just like the physical labor (laughs) that staff do Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of things that are um unsaid and unseen and um we we are looking to break from that.
1: Yeah,
3: yeah. Go ahead, you, Joe. Go ahead. I just want to talk about the upside a little bit because I think the whole governance thing, uh, the efficiency needs, uh, is really, I have a great anecdote for that, just I'll do it real quick. I, when I lived in Argentina and we uh, working with indigenous uh, folks, they had, this, this community was in crisis, everyone was fighting and the NGO that was working with them was just uh, beside themselves, they didn't know what the hell was going on Because they typically weren't this way. And it turns out what they did was they used to have consensus meetings. So the community would go in and they would take three days to make decisions, which was considered highly inefficient. So the well-meaning NGO introduced democracy, right? And it just totally messed them up uh it, because you know honestly when you have consensus and it does take time what it does it creates community it creates everyone feels like they've had a say and have to share a stake in the decision whereas with democracy it's like you have losers and winners right and, they, and the community wasn't used to that so it really created a lot of bad feelings for people that they just felt you know what ultimately the show to this ngo was that this consensus system was incredibly efficient for that community <laughs> far more mm-hmm. so <laughs> right than mm-hmm. our colonized ideology about how to sure. do things so so Good i mean point, i think i think that's wonderful to hear that there are actually models going on in our society because consensus is challenging for us because we are colonized uh, intellectually mm-hmm. and ideologically and emotionally and we don't understand how to do it but it's wonderful to hear that it's being done and it's succeeding that's great
1: Absolutely, that's amazing. Yeah, uh, Sean, did you want to jump in for a second there? Or? Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to say I think that um, you know everything. All, everything you're saying, I
0: I I completely agree with, and I want to see the all these different types of value, emotional labor, um, you know, debt that is hidden and not necessarily acknowledged. Uh, all, all of those things taken into account. But it seems like where we are now, (laughs) with most of corporate America is you have like a 300 to one CEO to lowest paid worker ratio. It's insane. And I think that like, if we could even get people to like 20 to one or 10 to one, like it would be a huge improvement and getting everybody totally flat. It's almost like that's a unicorn. I mean, that is that is so like that is like perfection, you know, in a way. And it it may even be beyond perfection, because I think that there has to be like some it seems like you don't necessarily want a hierarchy, but you want people who are, uh, you know, working their way up through an organization to feel like that they have a goal, right? I mean, aside from the, I mean, obviously the goal is the success of the organization, but but they might have a, I think everybody has personal goals too. And so I'm wondering just what you, you know, how you see that, can there be a scale that's that's fair, that really works, that's not completely flat?
2: Yes, absolutely. That's, i completely agree with that like bring it shrinking the gap is great that's and it doesn't i'm not saying at all that the flat the complete flat is the ultimate goal for everyone in every institution and i it it, so in terms of what you're saying about like you know build working your way up to like a level um i think that's that's like that's what we're used to you know like people are used to climbing the ladder um up to the management level to the top and the way, like the way I see Pangea, like our organization is more like a jungle gym. <laughs> you know, you can, you can go like climb here a little bit and then go try out the swings and try out the, you know, you can, it's, it's really agile and, um, really fulfilling, I think for everyone that's involved in, in, in the organization. Um,
1: great. Yeah. Great point. I, you know what I was thinking and uh, just to to talk a little bit about what you were just saying sean and what you just said nilu is um right talk about we talked a lot we've talked a lot about colonizing of of the mind right the sort of cult the, the colonial perspective and and maybe that 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 we are we've been conditioned to want to drive up towards something um, because our culture has been that way oh, for absolutely. so so long, right? So yeah, I'm not absolutely. saying that there's no there's no ind- independent like drive that we each have, but like that concept of I want to work my way through an organization is itself a, co- a, a, a colonizer mindset, right? So I think that like, and again, I agree that, and I, I love that you are. Um, I I'm, I am I do not like dogma, so I'm really I really he, it's really great to hear you Neilu be like yeah well this is what works for us right and it'd be better and let's shrink that gap. And you talked also about different tier systems that you've seen that have been that that actually makes some sense. Um, I think what we can all agree on though is that the system that we have right now three hundred to one. Um, uh, right the uh, this sort of you go walk you basically walk into like a fascist dictatorship every time you go to work. Right oh, it's someone terrible. can just <laughs> someone someone can just fuck <laughs> with you for just because they just they have the power right and we know how how power corrupts um so um i and here is sort of a um uh, uh i a uh, joke, but when when did you become such a communist is the question. When was the <laughs> point at which you said to yourself, you know what, I don't like the old hierarchy more stuff anymore and I want to become a communist. but in all seriousness, though, like were you did you always did you always feel this way about this? because it, it sounds like you came, this was sort of like a journey for you. Um, is this something you would always would have advocated for?
2: Um, well, I, I am the child of revolutionaries. Um, mm. <laughs> I'm the child of revolutions <laughs> who helped topple the oppressive monarchy in Iran, um, right. mm. and I'm also a product of colonization and U.S. imperialism. Like I was describing before, you know, the U.S. Mm-hmm. and England overthrew Iran's democratically elected leader back in the '50s and installed a dictator, the king. Um, sure. Sure. And yep. dictatorship and patriarchy was, you know, ingrained in me since the seed. So I definitely have had those tendencies and i even even though i've had these values i developed these values in college um i definitely perpetuated a lot of that like this like hierarchical like top-down mindset and i definitely have made colleagues feel unseen unheard unvalued and some of the pain most painful moments at pangea um yeah were like the result of that result of me doing those Mm -hmm. things and they've also been like my greatest learning moments that like Mm -hmm. led to my growth and um yeah i share a lot more about that um in my in my book that's going to be out in 2022 uh, and later this year um but um but yeah when did i become (laughs) when did i develop this like these ideas i developed these ideas um when i studied abroad in argentina and it's funny that you mentioned argentina joe um i (laughs) where were you in buenos aires um in the Uh, capital Yeah, I studied abroad yeah. there, and I was kind of blown away um, by what I saw firsthand. Um, and it's what an I amazing s- country! It's amazing, and the like yeah. specifically what I saw was the worker co-ops. Um, yes. I was there in two thousand four, and the they're just Argentina had just come out of a huge economic crisis. Um, the and back in 2000, 2001, the 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 peso, the the money had been devalued, all these foreign investors, which most of the uh, factories and industries in Argentina were foreign owned, all these foreign investors fled. They just packed up and went back to like Italy, Europe, wherever they were coming from. Um, And these factories and these businesses were left in empty shells and workers, people were unemployed. They were like, you know, totally desperate. They didn't know what to do. Banks had shut down. Their money was worthless. Like, Mm. So these workers went and they, like, they literally physically, like, broke down the chained up factory doors, um, went in and restarted these factories. And then (laughs) by the time I visited them, they had, like, set up these systems of, like, of shared leadership, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that I was like, yeah. that I ended up writing my college thesis on and then had, had oh, in my, cool. I had that in the back of my mind when I started Pangea, like, Oh, like this cooperative model, like they shared leadership. They, they rotated like the role of president or the leadership and they, they shared money. They, di- they distributed the the income from these factories. It was very little at the initially. But they distributed based on people's needs. They were like, "Oh, you have more children, so you get a little extra pay this month. You have like a health issue in your family, like you get extra, you know, extra salary this month or this week." And um, they, um, they, it wasn't just one or two factories. There were over three hundred recuperative wow. factories in Buenos Aires in the greater Buenos wow, Aires wow. area that um that did this and they su- they ended up supporting each other over the years like one of them was like doing not so well economically the other one would bail them out a little bit they they created this amazing network and when i saw this it was you know you you asked you know like the, have have i always had these values i was like no cuz i was ingrained with like this like dictatorial like patriarch like you know that was kind of the top down like teacher, student, like parent, child, top, you know, that was what I was used to. And, but then I, I saw like for the first time, these workers like in circles and I was like, wow, this is the most humane, like form of relationship structure I've seen. (laughs) This is amazing.
0: It's really interesting because uh, when, when Christoph's, uh like he, he made this joke, like I'm thinking to myself, you know, are you now or have you ever been a communist? It's that <laughs> whole you know, red scare, uh, uh, you know, 1950s blacklisting thing, you know, and and it really, really kind of pointed out to me because when I heard, you hear that word communist and, and, and everybody just freaks out, right? I mean, you, mm-hmm. you literally freak out and, and even thinking about this idea of a, a workers collective, you know, where you might get a little more just because you needed it. You know, it's so foreign to the American mindset. And I think it's something that we really have to, to think about and look into. Like, why is it that we are so against this? What is it about having everyone have enough and everyone being taken care of that, oh. is, that is so hostile that it just generates such hostility? And I'm wondering if you have any insight about that.
2: <laughs> that's a that's a big question. Um, the insight on the hostility, yeah. I mean, did did you all watch the movie? Don't look up.
1: Uh, of course, yeah. we did. We did. A we whole sure show on did. It. We did a whole show on it, actually.
2: <laughs> oh, that's right. Actually, I saw that. Yeah, I didn't watch it, but I saw it. Yeah. Right, so, right, right, right. so in in the movie Don't Look Up, I think there is this great line um, of like. You know, where where the the son, um, the president's son is saying, we need you, the working class, um, to help us, the cool rich, to fight them. And them is like the resistance, the resistance, the commies, like anybody who's questioning. That was, I mean, I think that's like, that's my insight to your question. (laughs) I think that summarizes it.
1: That is that yeah. that is so perfect. So perfect. That and, is. And, and and you know, I think what we're talking about here too, which I think is really interesting, is how we and I, I this is what I keep coming back to as we talk here is that is how we are con- colonized from the inside, right? That we don't even realize that we are that we are operating under these these ideas that seem like they are um they're givens, right? Like this is the way it always is, right? That's just a given. That's sort of what you're talking about, Sean, natural. right? And, and, yeah. and it's natural, right? Yeah. And and, and I, what I respect about what you've done and what I think that, and I think that's a challenge that we all face, those of us who I think we, th- we think who are progressive and we care about this stuff and we care about moving forward is that willingness to continue to ask ourselves those questions, right? What yeah. is What am I assuming about the world right now, right? That is in line with that an ideology that I don't actually agree with. Um, and what am I, what am I assuming is given? And I think that's a real challenge. I think that is sort of the challenge, especially for those of us who, who you know, we get up and we do what we can for social justice, right? We do what we play our little part in the act, you know, um, that it, it's, I think it's important that we keep asking ourselves those questions. Um, and so I think that it's really cool that you have. And I want to – does anybody else want to sort of comment um, any more on that? It tr- looks like, Joe, you might have something to say. Yeah, I, I do. I
3: think there's, We. it's not just about ideology. I mean, ideology is a big part of it. But, I mean, there's been a strategy and tactics of absolutely undermining any efforts around the world to have that cooperative shared model. Mm. But the United States primarily, but also other countries where – I mean, even even Iran, where after the revolution, they – the first couple of years before – the Ayatollah's consolidated power. There's a lot of experimentation there about social cooperatives, Soviets and all that. And it happens everywhere, but it's always the hierarchies come in and they squash it. It's not just that it just falls apart on its own. And that's been the history for the last 150 years. A constant assault on any you know, regular people's efforts to try to live a shared cooperative life. It's been, yep. it's been a constant assault Totally. And, and, and really, that's something we're going to keep in mind.
0: I think it manifests for a lot of people. Like I was, I, I, again, on social media, this is how you tell what people are saying and thinking. And somebody was remarking, oh, I see all these expensive cars in line at a food bank. And the, the just sheer nasty, uh, uh, judgment of that statement is insane. Like, how do you know why somebody has a nice car? Right. And this idea that we, everybody like is all into, we should be kind, we should be, we compassionate, we should be cooperative. But then the first opportunity, they're going to look down on someone who is getting help. Someone who is getting any sort of Mm. social support or or cooperative support, right? Because what are food banks? Most of the time, they are people who've just gotten together to share surplus food, right? And so Mm. why would someone be upset at someone sharing surplus food and then the other comment that came up is, "Oh well, what about grocery stores? You're going to put grocery stores out of business." And it just goes on and on like this, where there's just so many uh, bad ideas that come up naturally in the population uh, against
1: any sort of equality or justice. Yeah, yeah, I that's you know a really great point, Sean. Really, really great point. And I think um, it's it's important, right? People always say you hear this a lot. Uh, in in the social media, growing up too is right. You know, socialism doesn't work, right? It just makes people X. It makes people Y. Or communism doesn't work. You see, it's failed. Capitalism, capitalism, uh, works. But it's like no, but it, capitalism works the best and all that. But what ends up happening though is that, like you saying, Joe, and what you everyone's saying here is that it's not like they actually had to get a full chance. To show themselves, right? They're immediately no, like just stormed down. by. Uh, it could be the CIA, for Christ's sake, right? And oftentimes it is the CIA, right? Yeah. So my point is that, like, and 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 just neoliberalism in general, right? So you have these. Uh, so we, there, there really is rarely is there a a really pure opportunity to experiment in that way. Um, so I, I want to move on now to uh, another. Uh, topic here um i just let us know a little bit of the work you're doing over at pangea so uh, i know you call yourselves uh, movement lawyers which i think is fucking rad so <laughs> what does that mean though tell us about that
2: yeah um sort of along this, the same theme uh this, mm-hmm. this ha- of hierarchy lawyers mm-hmm. um often like to be you know sort of at the center or above you know telling clients top down you know i'm the authority um and the system is set up that way clients are below the attorney the attorney is below the judge uh the judge is below the appellate judge uh the immigration judge is below the appellate and it goes on you know it's we have these Mm. it's like this system and um you know it ultimately protects like this power and these hierarchies protect people with concentrated like wealth and power, like very few people. Um, And a movement lawyer kind of sees through that. um, And we don't view ourselves above the client or below the judges. Um, We kind of, you know, see the power in the masses and in the collective and in the possibility that we could have a system that's not rigged and set up stacked Mm. against, against us and our, our community Um, and I think that, yeah, in some ways we're, we're like super optimists. Um, I think it's, um, it also means encouraging our clients to take a mic or in the community, take the microphone and speak for themselves and connecting folks Mm -hmm. like, um, like Yasmin, um, whose shirt I'm wearing today. Um, we connected her with a newspaper while she was in immigration prison. And she um, she we helped her write an op-ed and place the op-ed in a publication and like lifting those voices. I think that's that's movement lawyering Um, Mm -hmm. and then supporting her and the movement that was fighting to shut down the ICE prison facility that held Yasmin um, and winning that. (laughs) We were able to shut down Mm -hmm. the Contra Costa detention facility, the ICE contract with them Um, like Pushing for things like that—that's movement lawyering. Um, you know, not just stopping at the like, oh, I got to get my client out of jail, or oh, I just got to get my client in asylum. It's like going beyond that and trying to break the system that's, that, you know, is nice. is holding this together. Nice.
1: It sounds like it's it's a very holistic sort of approach as well. Are you so when you're? How does it work with an with an individual? Let's say you have a client. Um, uh, how is that your client, your relationship with that particular, or, or a case, particularly, particularly asylum case, let's say? How does your relationship with the client uh, differ, or, or and and your and the other? Um, I guess what I'm thinking what is what does collective governance look like in terms of a a, a client lawyer relationship? Is there multiple lawyers? How do you how do you approach that?
2: Yeah, actually, in a lot of our cases, our lawyers team up. There's like one main lawyer that's holding the case or most pieces of the case. And there are others that are collaborating and supporting in different ways. Um, But I'll give you an example of one of my first clients um, who was detained. Uh, His name was Jesus. He was young. He was a young uh, guy in his 20s. His dad called me when he'd been picked up. He'd been thrown into jail, picked up by ICE. on his way back from work or at work. And um, he, his dad called.
1: Those lazy immigrants, right? Oh my God. That's he literally astounding. was on his way home from work. Astounding. What? It's, uh, it's astonishing. Sorry, I'm just, I that know. shit just pisses oh. me off. I know. Oh. Oh.
2: On his way from work. And not oh. only like, not not just any job, but this kid, I mean, he had, From like, he'd been, he'd come here to the US when he'd been brought here when he was like four years old, had gone to school here, was the only kid in his family to graduate high school, everybody else around him had like not made it. And he just like one day made up his mind and went to night school, like got a teacher to help him and graduated, was the first in the family to graduate then got this job at this sheet metal factory and got promotion after promotion. Cause he was amazing. And like his employer loved him. And he just like, he did some really comp he showed me some of the like complex math and like online the tech stuff he did with this sheet metal. And, um, hmm. that's, yeah, that's what he was doing. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and I came to pick him up to deport him and based on what, based on an old deportation order that he'd gotten when he was nine, because um because he had a bad lawyer that bad lawyer had been disbarred Mm, he had already been disbarred and that like had messed up the case so then um before i got this call he had art jesus had also been deported in his like a few years earlier he and his dad or he and he had been deported um and um had come back. So he had, he had that, this issue of like having been deported and come back again. Mm -hmm. Um, and that made that put in the question of DACA, DACA is deferred action for childhood arrivals. President Obama just announced DACA. This, This was a few months after he announced it. And ICE was saying, Nope, like Jesus can't get DACA because he's been deported and he was out of the country during the period that he needs to be here. Um, and so it was just so unfair. It was so unfair. That's, but that's just a little context. So Jesus' um, Jesus's dad called me and said, my kid's in jail. Can you help him? I drove down. I stopped the deportation. I entered my uh, appearance. But then it was not the legal work that, or the legal arguments that I made that got Jesus out. It was the community advocacy. Mm-hmm. It was the the DACA activists, the dream activists, the youth and like every single one of the like 50 plus people that came out to the rallies, the over 5,000 people that started the signature, this petition um, that went around to congressional reps and senators around the country and the calls that were made to rep- legislators um, and the calls that ultimately were made to ICE to release Jesus, that's what got him out. And, um, you know, I, um, The last, the day that he was getting out, he called me and he was like, Nilu, they're telling me to pack my bags. I'm getting out. Is this real? And he was like, It better be real. Mm. It better be real because I just got top bunk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like, I'm not, I'm not giving up my top bunk. I mean that's like a big right that's a big status step up that is a lot like in that kind of environment right so that's 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 unbelievable wow i'll tell you
0: as as you're telling this story my blood is just starting to boil and boil and boil because i'm thinking about all of the mega shitheads that need we need to send back somewhere else and get rid of them and bring people like <laughs> Jesus into the country who are go-getters and who are, you know, devoted, who learn, they learn a second language. They come here, they figure it out and they're successful. And then we kick them out. I mean, it
1: just, it's, uh, it just, it's insane to me. It's so insane. So insane. Jody, I vote. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Neil.
2: Yeah. But I mean, the community had power in this one, the community fought mm. for that. And that's what, yeah, that's what, um, that's what really held him here. And that's what allowed us to actually then get him DACA. It was, it was all this advocacy that then allowed, I, and yeah, I have to say the, the, the motion that I submitted to the court to reopen his case was built basically on all of this advocacy. There was very little law. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There was discretion. (laughs) There was discretion that was exercised. You know, it was, uh, it was extra legal. Yeah.
1: That's amazing, and so if I could just follow that up quickly. Um, so, is that kind of advocacy part of like every case, right? I mean, or is that use is that sort of is that sort of your modus operandi, or that is for certain cases that that might work? Maybe if you don't have the law on your side.
2: Yeah, it's not. It's not uh, part of every case. Uh, I would say most of our asylum cases don't have that at the moment, but it's mm-hmm. a. It's something that we are striving towards, you know, we just hired, sure. we just hired organizers at, um, at our organization and we're looking to, to work and organize with our clients and their family members and the communities, um, in every step of the way. And that's something that we're looking to build in parallel and expand on and to just, you know, this it's part of the like movement, lowering power building, community sure. building, um, vision that we have.
1: Definitely like an organizing, an organizer component to this, right? And and that's so amazing because we 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 at the radical secular care about solutions, and this like right, the solution to oppression is always solidarity, right? The solution, this that's how you fight back. That's the only way we fight back. That's it, right? And so the fact that you are so really pulling all those things together to help people and 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 create community, that's that is. That is really, really phenomenal. Um, Joe, did you want to say something? I feel like I cut you off.
3: No, it's okay. I just want to say that it's really hard to keep, a, a, keep uh, feeling hope these days. Mm. And you give, uh, Neil, you give me hope. Definitely. I think that's right.
2: I have a lot of hope. Yeah. I'm an etern- eternal hope optimist. <laughs> that's awesome.
3: That's awesome. <laughs> it must be so satisfying to have this kind of victory when you're saving people's lives, literally. Like oh. when you're making such a difference. It must be so wonderful to experience that sense of joy, you know. And it, it's such a blessing to, to people to, for, for this work. is just so important.
2: You know, it's, it is a joy and it's a relief. I mean, more than anything, it's usually a relief. And, um, yeah, after like each asylum case, um, I don't know if it's every, but nearly every asylum case, I like tears come into my eyes. Mm. (laughs) Um, and at the same time, I have to say it's, it also pisses me off. Like it just pisses me off. Like the, yeah, I, I'm, I'm often like really relieved and, happy but also angry really really angry at the system and at the judges and at the ice officers and the ice attorneys about what they make our community and our people go through and um yeah it's uh it's it's both (laughs) it's really Mm -hmm. both and it's you know it's the community and the collective um work and that piece of it that um that makes the grieving and the anger that eases it a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. and that just like, you know, keeps us going. I think a lot of the time, um, and not all cases, you know, we don't win all cases. There are cases that we don't win. And when there is community there, we've had, you know, in one case where our client, um, was being sent, being deported, um, community members were there and we did a go around and we shared and, Some of them were like some of some some were really depleted, and others were like, "We're going to send her care packages so that when she when she arrives, like she'll she'll have like a little box of gifts from us." And there's just things that um, the community and collective can hold that um, individuals and attorneys alone and organizers alone can't. Yeah.
1: Sure. Sure. Sean, did you have a comment? Well, I just wanted to say that. A lot of people
0: they hear the name of our show and this is this is for our listeners as well out there that secularism is anti-religion and it it is a little bit of that but it's also about treating all religions equally that's the official definition of that word secularism but we also extend that definition to treating all people equally Regardless of you know race, creed, nationality, whatever it is, and so this immigration question, you know, aside from being important to me personally, this fit, this is the, fits right into the core mission of our show is is trying to get justice with this, and it's like Joe said, you know, it's it, it is inspiring to hear you talk about the community and the enthusiasm, but it's also when you look at the logjam uh, that exists at that at all levels at the federal, there, you know, there's, there hasn't been any real federal movement on immigration in, in many, many years. And so um, that's uh, I, I just thank you for your advocacy and your work. And and each one of these stories that happens is multiplied 10,000, 100,000 times. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it's just it's it's gratifying to know that someone is doing something.
2: Thank <laughs> you. Yeah.
1: I mean, it really does give us hope. I mean, it, you know, it's it's very it, it is. And like you were saying, Joe, in a time when hope it's it's hard to feel that way, right? Things are uh things are dire, right? Um so it it is, I don't know, really, really important. I, I deeply respect what you're doing at Pangea. I think that it's all very impressive. I think you're very impressive. Um and it, and you know, it really more than anything else, right? It's like what it what I love hearing you talk about is is this. Is that we can, we can, we can reimagine the workplace. It doesn't have to wake up yeah. every Monday morning and it's like that feeling of absolute dread. People do have buy-in you're talking about, right? They feel like they are, they have a stake. In this, um, and uh, and and the only way we'll get there is by the sort of movement kind of work that you're doing there, because independently we can't do anything. Now, um, I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your book, if you'd like to. Don't feel like you have to. I don't want to give you no spoilers or whatever, but um, t- like at least tell us like what your what what is your goal with the book? Um, you know, when when will it be out? Uh, what in in the broadest terms, which way what should people expect?
2: Yes. Uh- My book is going to be out September, 2022. Um, the, it has two parts, basically the the things that we, the two things that we talked about today, the collective governance and our immigrant justice piece, the collective, um, collective, uh, leadership and movement lawyering. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there's two pieces. Um, and, um, it, the, on the collective governance it's, it's, um, it sort of chronicles the, like, Pangea from year one to nine um, to now. And um, there's just a lot of lessons about um, about Pangea as a case study, but also lessons drawn from other organizations and companies that have um, have this, like, liberation at the forefront. Um, it's mm. like...
1: Awesome. Sounds great. awesome. I mean it's just I I'm looking forward to reading it. Maybe we'll have to have you back on after it comes out and we all get a chance to read it so we can uh you know talk about these themes because to Sean's point, like the themes that we're talking about here, the uh the challenging to hierarchy, the challenge to internal and external colonialism, right, that's inside of us and also that is outside of us. The challenge to these structures that so many of us, right, don't look up, so much so many of us don't look up, don't take a time to reflect on uh on on the way our lives are and and ask if it has to be this way right do we have to hate everything when we wake up every morning (laughs) do we we, and and i don't think that we do and i think that um your your energy nilu is is really is really infectious and i think we could all use all of us everywhere could use a good dose of that so um definitely Thank you. Thank you all uh, for being part of this conversation. Nilu, thanks so much for joining us. It has been it's been
2: awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here.
1: I don't know what you guys think, but I think Dilu is seriously kick-ass. She was yeah. super impressive in law school. She's super impressive now. And I really enjoyed speaking with her. Um, it was hopeful. Do either of you guys have any uh, final thoughts? Absolutely. I mean,
0: I, I, you know, I think I said it all pretty much in the interview, but I just, I can't reiterate enough how much we need people like her at every level, because mm. what what gets started in terms of bad policy at the federal or state level, ends up getting adjudicated in the courts. And sometimes that's the last stop for mitigating some of these terrible, terrible policies that we deal with. And, and make no mistake, I mean, the United States of America is suffering grievously from not allowing more free immigration. Mm. We we would be able to bring a lot of people a lot more people under the tax base. We would be able to, a lot of this top talent, like Jesus, who, you know, fortunately was not deported, there are, there are h- tons of stories like this of, of people who have dedicated their lives to becoming uh, a hardworking American citizen and they just can't get there. And yeah. so this to me is, it's, it's one of the top issues facing our nation among, among the like hundred that we have to <laughs> deal with. But, but yeah. for real, I mean, this is, this is serious and it's affecting people's lives every day. Millions of people are living in fear of deportation.
3: Totally. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I also would say that the aspects of her collaborative and shared mm-hmm. workspace is also a really critical aspect of all this, because I think we do need new models. I don't think we're going to make it without them. I think this, that, that this very hyper competitive, top down hierarchical way of organizing society is spent. I think we're in trouble. And I think we need new models. And that doesn't matter what you call it. You can call it socialism, you can call it whatever the fuck you want. It's not about an ism. It's about mm. you know, having a better way of managing our society, our relationships, and everything. And it's, there are possibilities. There are models that we can look at, and we need to open our minds to them. Absolutely. And you know,
0: you know, Joe, this is the thing is no matter what it is, no matter what the model, no matter how good of an idea it is, if it doesn't allow exploitation of the poor, and if it doesn't create hierarchy, the right is going to be against it, because that is that is their only priority that they want to maintain the system as it is. And every effort you can,
3: you can call it anything, and they're going to call it socialism.
1: (laughs) That's exactly right. Exactly
3: right. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. And it's, it's insidious. I mean, it's, it, they're against it on overtly, publicly, and they'll speak at, bad against it. But the whole friggin' structure is organized to stop that kind of thing. Like, f- f- right from our, log, like, why don't we have worker cooperatives? We could in a capitalist system. Like You could have co- cooperative companies mm-hmm. working in a capitalist system, but We don't because it's structured against it right at all levels and you can look at laws you can look at all kinds of institutions why that happens but it's not incidental and i think we've got to go there especially Mm. with climate change uh, especially with the fact that we're a multicultural world and growing more and more connected we have to get there if we don't get there we're in real serious trouble
1: And and I, I agree with that absolutely and and just attack on another structure that's always under attack is unions and collective bargaining right oh, absolutely I mean that's a way you can keep your capitalist system right. And you can have, but workers actually have a voice. And the last thing these folks want, because they know, right, that you destroy hierarchy by by working together, by solidarity. That's how you do that. And so that's the best, That's what's one of the first things that gets attacked and slandered as communism, as if that is inherently a bad word anyway. But right. um, but communism and socialism, and all these and all these words, you know. Um, but uh, it, it was really great to see, to your point, uh, uh, Joe, to see. Um, an example of this functioning, and you know, it, it's an amazing thing to see. And, and to your point, Sean, um, it reminds us of how, that real people are being affected by this every single day. It is not an right. abstract issue. This is not it, these are real people. By the way, I mean, uh, in in the neighborhood that we but we all live in right now, there is people that are that are being that are being affected by that. Right. Um, yeah.
3: One more thing I want to say. Sure. In, yeah. Th- in terms of neoliberalism, that was brought up. Mm -hmm. Argentina was the proving ground for neoliberalism. Mm. They all went in there, all the Mm -hmm. neoliberals, and it was their test site. It was their model. And it was a fucking failure. It devastated that country. And now it's happened there like it's happened here, but 10 to 20 times faster in Argentina. And maybe what we're seeing now is what we're we're seeing in Argentina and and workers taking over uh, factories and that kind of thing. We're going to see it here, too, I think, yeah. at some point. I, I, you know, and I, I think there is that hope. I think that eventually things are going to get so bad that people will have no choice but to think about new models. Uh, Listen, I just, you know.
0: Even the founders of capitalism, you know, the, the, the intellectual founders like Adam Smith and, and mm-hmm. Friedrich Hayek, they were in favor of a certain amount of workers' rights. They totally. were in favor Absolutely. of of you know, some kind of healthcare, some kind I mean, you can look this up and neoliberals, modern neoliberalism, it it kills everything it touches and it doesn't (sighs) even hew to its own intellectual roots.
1: (laughs) That's an important point there, John. It's not not even honest about about it's about itself, right? It, like I can't even actually follow through on the uh, on the ideology it espouses, uh, right. which is because really at the end of the day, and we tell you this about conservatism more generally, that it's just a smokescreen for I want to dominate you, right? That's it. It's just a nice way of saying I don't want to have to run. I think that I should have more things than you, yep. right? And I'm prepared to do whatever it takes to get there. And so that's like the entire intel- intellectual uh, sort of exercise of conservatism right. and neoliberalism. That's all it is. Is. And it's I'm, g- I'm going to skim the profits off
0: the poor. I'm going to take from the poor, give to the exactly. rich. I'm going yep. to put my pollution into the environment and yep. not pay for it. It's all of those things, and that that, that is what it's become, and that is why uh, it's incompatible with democracy. Because people, you know, if you have majority yeah. rule,
3: people won't stand for that. Right, that's <laughs> right. And, and, that's and, right. and <laughs> in fact, th- this is why I'm going to say, uh, like, I don't know if you know David Harvey. He's a, a Marxist geographer scholar. Mm. Um, he's saying the neoliberalism is spent. And he's absolutely right. Neoliberalism mm. has led to basically a authoritarian, fascist moment. That's right, and I think even neoliberalism has is on to peter out because we are in a new phase now. And we've talked about this in the show, mm. but we've really got to think about that the damage that we, that neoliberal neoliberalism caused is now morphing into something new. Yeah, terrifying. And The the gun is becoming
0: overt, the gun, the gun to the head of the people, you know, Mm -hmm. previously it was just, you might lose your job. Now it's like, you know, if you stand up for your rights at all, we're going to arrest you or shoot you. Right.
3: Which is not neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is basically a hegemonic system where you, you control through nonviolent means. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, and that's a key difference as well. An important difference, an important difference. And so thank you both guys for being part of this conversation. Um, and uh, and thank you all to our uh, to our listeners and to our watchers. We love you. We appreciate you. Um, and remember that if you like our show, to make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles regularly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Christoph Defoe. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular.
2: The Radical
0: Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, and Joe Okipinti. Logo and main title designed by Tim Stettner post-production and original theme music by sean prophet special thanks to our support team lindsey brightman Gillian sky jacobs and Lori field okapinti